welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. The 1971 film that was adapted from a stage play, Fiddler on the Roof, was nominated for several Academy Awards, won three of them, won Golden Globe Best Picture and Best Actor Award. The movie takes place in um, the Soviet Union and a part of Ukraine with a Jewish uh, family that is a farming family and quite poor. And this father of this family, Tevya, and his wife, they have five daughters, and their goal is to uh, help their daughters get married to somebody who is, uh, each of them to find a husband who is uh, wealthy, kind of Jewish within the family, acceptable within the broader circles, uh, and that they would launch them into life and therefore they're gonna be taken care of. And especially because they were poor, they wanted to make sure these were good, stable, um, financially stable homes. Now, all of you millennials and Gen Zs are like, oh, that's so oppressive. And all of us parents are quietly going, oh, we wish we could still do that today. So uh, what's interesting is that each of his daughters pushes Tevia a little bit further than he wants to go. The first one comes and tells him that she has found someone that she's actually fallen in love with, a poor tailor in the village who's known to the family, um, and that they have made a pledge together. And so they come and they say, we've actually made a promise to each other that we would like to get married. And Tevi says, oh, like he's, what should I do? And it, uh, the, the, the feature of the film really is, is Tevia's monologues, his inner struggle with, well, what about this? What about that? And he uses this phrase, well, on the one hand, on the one hand, he's struggling. On the other hand, with his culture and his tradition, and yet what his daughter wants. And so he gives in and, and he lets this, the, the first daughter marry this poor tailor. Well, then the second daughter comes and actually says, someone has proposed to me, this young Jewish man who had come from the outside, who's not from the village. He's actually a freedom fighter. He wants to help the Jews fight against the oppressive uh, Russian czar and his anti-Semitic sort of practices that are directed at Jews. And so this young man is sort of a revolutionary. And Tevye has some concerns about that, not to mention the fact that he proposed to his daughter without telling him. So he again, again goes into his monologue and saying, well, what about this? What about that? On the one hand, on the other hand, and he finally says, okay, fine. It's not what I had hoped, but I agree. But then the third daughter falls in love with a Russian, not from their country, not from their ethnic group, and even outside their faith circle. And Tevi and his wife forbid the daughter to even speak to this young man, and yet they go off and get married. And of course, the parents are so upset. And we pick up the scene in this movie where the daughter comes to find Tevia to, to try to convince him to see things from her point of view. Let's watch that. You may not be a peasant Jewish farmer living under Soviet rule with uh, five daughters <laughs> to take care of, um, but perhaps you've had that experience where you've been pushed to the point that you say, no, I cannot go any farther. There is no other hand to this argument. You know, this I can understand, this I can move on, this I can consider, this I can bend on, but this... If I do, I'll break. I can't. No further. We've been in a series that we are calling Two Ears, One Mouth, The Anatomy of Healthy Conversation. And if you're anything like me, the scriptures we've been reading, Jesus and the New Testament writers have been pushing us week after week. The idea we've been trying to get at is how do we, in our interpersonal relationships, in our interactions with each other, in our interactions with the world around us, how do we have conversations that are healthy and healing. 
And several weeks ago, if you, if you missed it or forgot it, I encourage you to go catch up on it. But just as a reminder, we started with this premise that the opposite of love is self-interest, that what is going to keep us from having healthy conversations is actually self-interest. Secondly, we talked about how um, this is first about like, don't make an ask of yourself, ask Jesus. The beginning point of listening is actually to ask Jesus, what do you have to say about these conversations, these interactions? Then we went on to say, hey, it's possible and we actually have to learn how to have a good fight, to have a good fight with the people we love, that conflict doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to produce bad stuff. It can actually be healthy and good. Um, we went on from there to talk about, okay, forget just like people that we are um, in, in kind of love relationships with. How do we learn not to fight over issues, but to fight for people, with people who think and believe very di differently from us? Rather than fighting with people over issues, we fight for people. And then last week, we talked about the fact that our instinct needs to be, instead of getting angry or emotionally responsive first, that our instinct needs to be to listen first. And probably you've been pushed and you've been feeling yourself pushed. I certainly have along the way. But if you haven't already, I'm telling you that perhaps today you're going to get to this point where you're saying, no, that's too far. <laughs> I can't go any further. There is no other hand to that. I don't even know how to do that. That's far enough. And here's what I want to say, like that there are relationships that we have in our life. We talked about how... Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it's not about fighting with people. It's about fighting for people um, and not about issues. But then as we get to those interpersonal relationships, what about those individuals in our lives? People who we might say have fallen into or have become or have chosen to make themselves our enemy. Our enemy. It could be someone within our family or in our extended family. It could be a, a, a coworker, somebody we work with. It could be a, a student, someone who we go to school with, we study with. It could be a boss. It could be a teacher. It could be someone that we would consider even in small ways or in big ways, a bully. It could be an ex, an ex-girlfriend, an ex-boyfriend, an ex-husband, an ex-wife. Somebody who has fallen into the category in our interpersonal relationships of maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, maybe we wouldn't use the term or we wouldn't use a capital E, but it is an enemy. And, that, and what I mean by that is, and maybe we, just mean, we don't use those words a lot, but think about this. Someone in that, in, in, in that some sphere of your life who you would say is like against you. They're looking for a fight. They're kind of looking to pick a fight. Where or you would say, healthy conversation? Right, yeah, right. It's always toxic with them all the time. There's no such thing as a healthy conversation. It's, even if I wanted to, it's not possible. Or you might say, you know, they want nothing to do with me. They, their level of hostility or enmity towards me is so high. It is off the charts. Clearly, I am an enemy to them. Or you might say that they've done too much damage to me. It's too hurtful. Or for whatever reason, it has become a personal attack. Somebody in that arena, how do we deal with them? What's interesting, every time, every week, we go back to scripture and we've been going to the New Testament community every week, the community, the first community of Jesus followers in the first century. And here's what's fascinating about um, 
Jewish people in the first century, in first century Palestine, the, the world or the community into which Jesus was born and where his first followers came out of, they truly had enemies on every side. For about 400 years leading up to the, the first century, the birth and the, the presence and the life of Christ, they had been ruled by, occupied by four empires. First Babylon, then Persia, then Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and then the Romans. And these weren't like people they were fighting back and forth with. These were empires that had crushed them, that had ground them under their heel. They were the most powerful empires. They still, in a sense, are referenced as some of the most powerful empires the world has ever known. And Rome, in some ways, was the worst. These were people that were enemies of them on multiple levels. They were the enemies of their god. They, you know, they didn't like what they believed, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how they thought it was dangerous because Caesar was Lord, not Jehovah. Um, and so they were against their religion. They were against them. Like in a sense, they were trying to suppress their religion, suppress their ethnic identity. They wanted them to be and live and act as Roman citizens under Roman rule. And not just from a government standpoint, this wasn't just sort of what was going on at a nationalistic political level. This was very personal for them. These were people that, it wasn't just about Caesar in Rome, it was about where they were in their occupied territory. There were soldiers in their village, in their hometown. It had become very personal for them. Some of them had, they have had their loved ones lost in battle, in sort of uprisings. Um, many of them, as I said to you before, the Roman taxation system was up to 90 and 95%. You were paying for the empire that was oppressing you, and it was affecting you personally in your home. You might have lost your farm, lost your business, or were living on the edge of or fully in poverty every day because of the Romans. And there would have been soldiers in your town, people with weapons, people who would use that against you. So this just wasn't like sort of capital E, enemy of the state or enemy of God or enemy of our religion, but it was, they were personal. They were personal hurts and damages. Now, it was even worse for Jesus followers. Because the one thing you had as a Jewish person in the first century was you had each other. You had your broader community of Jews. You had the synagogue. You had the religious leaders who were trying to help you navigate this. You had your community. And now Jesus was starting to garner enemies from his own people. Some of his own people, yes, he was accumulating a lot of fans, but a lot of enemies as well. And to be associated with Jesus was now to be on the wrong end. So the one thing that you had to help buffer you against your enemies, the Romans, people were now starting to turn on you. And so followers of Jesus were dealing with enemies now who were against them. To be associated with him was to be in a precarious position, was to face criticism and, and threat and possible punishment in some shape or form. And so these were people who were very familiar with the idea of enemies in their personal lives. And Jesus says something to them in this passage of Scripture we're going to look with where he's, he's teaching them, what does it mean to follow me? What does it mean for your life to be in the kingdom of God, the way I'm describing the kingdom of God? He says probably the most provocative um, and offensive thing he had ever said to anyone. I mean, other than, I am Lord, I have the authority to forgive sins. Um, if you've seen me, you've seen God. This thing was probably next. And it was one of those moments where they would have said, no, that's too far. There is no other hand to that. And uh, so don't, what you're about to hear, don't throw anything at the person reading scripture. They're just messenger. They just volunteered to read it. But I want you to listen to these words that Jesus has for us today.
You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, Jesus. No, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't go there. Yes, he did. Before you throw stuff at the scripture reader or tune out or just, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that or I don't even know what that means. That's too confusing to think about. Let's talk about what it does mean. Um, Jesus is, in a sense, um, talking to a community of people about the enemies in their life. And he is bringing out this situation, like various situations. He uses lots of different instances that weren't metaphorical. They were practical situations or instances that they would have faced on a regular basis. Essentially to say to them, how do we respond to people who are against us, to people who are um, either intentionally or unintentionally taking advantage of us, especially for people who are actually intentionally using their power, using their position, using their authority, using their wealth to exploit us? How do we respond to people who seem to be taking and taking and taking? Um, and, and on one level, what he's saying, you could look at this and go, this seems confusing because many times Jesus talked about being people, like to be in his kingdom means we fight against injustice. We fight against the systems and the powers and the people that are taking advantage of the weak and the poor. In fact, Jesus declared part of his mission as freeing the ones who were oppressed. He actually was harshly critical of the people and the systems that were using their power, using their religion, using their wealth to exploit the weak and the poor and who were perpetuating injustice. And in fact, Israel, throughout all their history, God would continually criticize them by saying, listen, you guys can do all the worship stuff you want and come to synagogue and come to temple, but you are ignoring justice for the weak. You are ignoring the poor. You are oppressing people. And if that's what you're doing, I don't care. True religion is actually to care for the oppressed. So what is Jesus saying here? He's not talking about um, fighting against injustice. He's actually making it very personal. So what about you? What about me? <laughs> In fact, what about him? When we have a personal issue with someone who has become our enemy or who has labeled us as an enemy and is treating us that way, how do we respond? And for them and for us, and I'm just going to warn you kind of throughout this message, this is so uncomfortable. I feel even uncomfortable preaching it in part because I don't fully know how to do it. 
I don't fully know what it looks like. There's parts of it I don't fully understand. And so just welcome to the discomfort that they would have felt that I feel that we feel today. But essentially, I think rather than seeing this as like some specific, you have to do this instead of this and do this, see this as Jesus pushing the boundaries on just how far we are willing to go to love others. Jesus pushing the boundaries and in fact pushing us. And so if we're not feeling the tension, we're probably not paying attention to what he's saying. This is Jesus pushing the boundaries on how far we're willing to go. And he goes on a few times and he says, you've heard it say, but I say. You've heard it say, but I say. This is Jesus actually unpacking many of their laws. You've heard it said, like God said, these are the laws you're given. Or you've heard it said is in your traditions, the rabbis, the teachers, the elders. These are the laws and these are the social codes and mores and norms that you have operated by. You've heard it said this and this and this, but I say. It was Jesus actually giving a new moral code, a new way of living to the people that were going to follow him. You've heard it said, but I say. And here's what he was picking at with them. They saw their laws and their traditions as marking out the boundaries of the minimum requirements on how you're supposed to treat other people. Like, what is the minimum standard to which I can still be considered a good person or I've fulfilled the law or that I, it's socially acceptable in my community? What's the minimum I have to do? He said that was the problem. That was what he was pointing out to them. And so therefore he was pushing it out and saying, you're asking the wrong things. I want you to be proactive in thinking just how far am I willing to go? It was not about the avoidance of wrong. Oh, what's the minimum factor? Is it wrong to, or do I have to, or how much do I have to, to say proactively speaking, just how far are you willing to go in love? And he gives a bunch of examples of pushing the boundaries in their everyday life, working his way up to the most offensive thing, the most offensive idea that Jesus put forward. He says that I tell you, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, God had told them to love their neighbor. He hadn't really said to hate their enemy, but they adopted this idea of the people of God. Like, hey, if we have enemies, God, the enemies of God are our enemies too. There are people who are against God, against our faith, against our people. They are our enemies. And in fact, there were many traditions with the rabbis and the elders that allowed them in a sense to say, these people we love, these people we can essentially hate or ignore or um, there are enemies. And Jesus said, I know you have operated like this, but I say, love your enemies and pray for them. <laughs> to which they would have said, what? Love your enemies. When he says enemies, they're thinking the Romans. They're thinking about the people who have ruined their lives. They're thinking about the people who have taxed them into poverty. They're thinking about the person who killed their son or their father or their grandfather. They're thinking of the 400 years of brutal oppression when he says the word enemies. And he says, love them and pray for them. And, and lest we think like, okay, this is, this is like about feelings and about, uh, um, uh, you know, thoughts, <laughs> you know, have good feelings. Jesus gives all these practical examples and even includes the words pray for, which is basically to say this is not about what you think about them or how you feel. It is about how you act towards those who are against you, those who have it in for you, those who have wronged you, those who have hurt you, those who have taken advantage of you. This is about your actions. And that's why he even includes pray for them. 
as in don't pray about them. We often pray about our enemies. <laughs> they were praying for God to get rid of the Romans. That's where they were hoping Jesus would do. We prayed for God to get rid of our boss or get rid of that bully. He's saying, he doesn't mean pray against them or pray about them. Pray for them. Pray blessing for them. How is that even possible, Jesus, they would have said, and we say, to love our enemies, to do good to those who hurt us, to pray for those who persecute us. This seems so idealistic, and in a sense, it is so idealistic. And practically, how does this even work? How is that even possible? <laughs> well, he actually gives them a clue in this language. He says, remember, you are children of your Father in heaven. He says, love your enemies so that you can prove that you are children of your Father in heaven. He's not saying God won't love you as his children if you don't love your enemies. What he's saying is, remember, this does not come from inside you. This, the love I'm talking about is the love of the Father. And he goes on to describe how God actually does not discriminate and that God loves all people and actively blesses all people. And he says, remember, the only way you're going to do this is by knowing that you are children of your Father in heaven. It is the love of God in you from the Father that actually makes you able to love people like this. Make no mistake, this is only possible for children of their heavenly Father. And then he says this, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He doesn't mean Never fail, never screw up, never make a mistake. This word perfect actually means complete. Or if you were to think about a precious metal, like pure gold, pure silver, it's not mixed with, um, you know, bronze or clay or cubic zirconia instead of a diamond. It's pure, it's true, it's complete. And this is what he's saying, like, the starting point for loving your enemies, for, for being able to love others, is realizing that you have in you the love of God. And God is actually inviting you into this to make your love and your life more complete, more true, more real. And, and he explains it in three ways, um, the three things that are actually beautiful benefits of what actually happens in our lives when we attempt to, however imperfectly, love and bless and pray for and act with generosity and kindness and mercy towards those who are against us. Um, the very first thing is that it makes, to love our enemies, to attempt to love them, actually makes our love for our loved ones more true. And, and he goes on to explain why he says, if you love those who love you back, that's not really love. That's just instinct or self-interest, right? He says, if you love those who love you, well, everybody does that. He's basically saying, that's not love. That's just self-interest. And if you think about it, that's true. When we love our spouse or love our children or love our friends, there's so much wrapped up in that love that is really self-interest. <clears throat> we say this when we date someone or we meet someone that, Oh, I love how she makes me feel. Oh, I love how he makes me feel. Oh, he's, he writes me all these beautiful notes. It's about how they make you feel. It's about how they make me feel. It's actually self-serving, right? When you have a child, often like to have a baby or people want a baby, it, it's this idea of love, but really it's about fulfilling like what I need or what I feel fulfilled by. This is just human instinct. I'm not being pejorative. It's just, it's just what it means to be human. 
Our own motives of self-interest are so wrapped up in our love, it makes our love for our loved ones not totally pure. It's not like a pure metal. It's got stuff mixed in it. It's got things other than love mixed in the love. Self-interest. But when you have to go down the road of actually learning to love someone or trying to love someone who does not love you back, who you're not getting anything back from except contempt and scorn and frustration or rejection, that is actually forcing you to deal with what love really is. And it begins to purify or weed out self-interest from love in every other relationship we have. That's what Jesus says. When you love those who love you back, that's not really love. This is really love to love your enemies. And that's the first beautiful thing that begins to happen. This is why the love of God comes into our lives, which the love of God is generous. It's what other pe- it's based on what other people need and who they are, not who uh, we are. He says that, that's actually true love. And that starts to purify our own love or get rid of self-interest in the actual love relationships you already have with people who aren't your enemy. So first, it actually purifies love, makes it better or more perfect or complete in every aspect of life, which is the first reason Jesus says, hey, this is what to do. But secondly, I thought about this. When we try to learn to love our enemy, it actually makes us re-examine our own behavior. And here's what I mean. When we have labeled someone as an enemy, it basically is a, is a, a, excuses our own unhealthy and destructive responses to them because we can do whatever we want because they're our enemy. And it makes what they're, whatever they're saying not credible. We don't have to listen to what they're saying. Even if 5% or 1% of their criticisms or their anger towards us are true, are accurate, are something we do need to pay attention to. When I've labeled someone an enemy, it gives me permission to act however I want in response to them. Because look what they did. Well, I can't believe, oh, but what I did is not nearly as bad. But did you see what she, and I see this oftentimes when marriages are breaking down and when one person in the marriage does something that is openly egregious or wrong or immoral and and definitely not right and sinful and destructive to the marriage, that oftentimes the other person's response becomes justified. And they say, well, I had to do this, or this is what, or did you see all of the focus is on what the other person does? And now we can justify any manner of frustration, retribution, unkindness, bitterness, whether, even if it's not active, but to be able to seethe with rage and be angry towards them. Our own unhealthy responses can be legitimized because they're an enemy. And we can block off the validity or credibility of what they might be saying in return. Those are just kind of two reasons to begin with that Jesus says, hey, if you begin to love your enemy, it will weed out self-interest from your own love. This is like true love. And secondly, it actually makes us start to see our own sin and our own wrong responses to what an enemy has done or said to us. Now, before we go on to the third one and get really practical about this, because I'm sure you have questions coming up, I want to take a moment and actually just pause together to have a discussion. There's going to be a couple questions on the screen for you. I'm going to give you like three to four minutes just to talk with the people around you. You don't need to get into all of the details of situations or whatever. But here's a couple. I want you to reflect on some of these statements a little bit. So here's what I want you to discuss together. Here's these two statements. Often our love for others, our friends, our family, or spouse is more self-motivated than we want to admit. That was one statement I made. 
The other one is labeling someone as an enemy allows us to justify our unhealthy or destructive responses to them and discount anything they might be saying to us. We don't have to listen, even if it's 1% true. So talk with each other. Do you think these statements are accurate? Where have you seen this around you or in your own life? And again, you don't have to get into tons of detail, but just, yeah, be honest with each other. And what questions is this bringing up for you? What are the yeah buts and what ifs? And if you were there in the room with Jesus saying, yeah, but what about this? You'd have your hand up. What are the questions that are coming up for you? So I want you to take three to four minutes and just spend some time talking with each other about that.
when Jesus pushes us, I was going to say invites us, but no, he pushes us to consider what loving our enemies looks like. Not only does it begin to weed out self-interest from love in general in our lives, because there's no self-interest in loving our enemies. Not only does it begin to actually make us reflect on some of the unhealthy and sinful ways we respond and have responded to our enemies or want to just ignore everything that they're saying to us. But then actually there's a third reason and it gets really practical. And lest we think that this is Jesus just saying, oh, just be nice. Don't worry about the fact that people are abusing you or taking advantage of you or whatever. Um, This is actually what Jesus, the example he gives really tells us that loving our enemy actually breaks the power they have over us. It isn't that Jesus is saying, it's fine, it doesn't matter. As we said, we know he, was, he stood up for and spoke up for and was actively seeking to remove injustice and was inviting people who followed him to do the same. But this method of loving our enemies is actually the most, it is the most power, powerful power move you could make. Um, right? Because so often... In, in response to hate or anger or frustration or the attack on an enemy, we get sucked into responding in the same way. And so it's a double whammy. It's a double, doubly destructive. It hurts us, and then we become like the ones we hate. I mean, this was when you read the journals and the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr. This was his great fear that somehow his own people that he was trying to liberate would get sucked into responding to the, their oppressors in the same way, and they would become like the ones they hated. And so this is the problem with it. And yet Jesus gives us a far more powerful power move, a subversive way to break the power that those who are using it against us have over us through love. And he gives this example. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile, choose to go the extra mile, choose to go two. And this is not a a metaphor because this would have been a situation that his listeners might have faced on a weekly basis. Secondly, this was not what that word has become to mean, which is, hey, just work harder, just do a little bit more, go the extra mile, do a little bit more, be a good worker. See, in, in, um, in Roman-occupied Palestine, as part of the occupation, soldiers could command a citizen of Rome, who this, you know, a, a Jewish person would have been, to carry their military pack with them for a mile while they marched. They were often marching between towns and villages. You could be heading this way, they were going this way, they could conscript you. You had to carry it. And it was not just uh, this person using you to alleviate their physical burden. This was a slap in the face. A Roman soldier asking a Jew to carry their pack was saying, hey, carry the weapons that I'm using to oppress you. Help me as I move on to the next town and next village where your family, your extended family or whoever lives so we can continue our oppression and our occupation as you as a people. So this would have been one of the most insulting things that a Roman soldier could ask them to do. It was using their power. And Jesus, okay, if someone forces you to go one mile, at the end of that mile, keep the pack on and go another mile. That's one way to love your enemies. Why? What are you doing? Well, you are subtly, subversively breaking their power over you. Because in that first mile, who has the power? The soldier has the power. The sword he carries has the power. The empire behind him has the power, and it forces you to do something you don't want to do. And so that first mile, you know, you're perhaps grumbling to yourself, seething. This is just a constant reminder of the enemies and the power they have in your lives. And perhaps that Roman soldier is smiling to himself or laughing out loud because he has the power of sword, the power of authority, the power of empire behind him. (laughs) 
But in that second mile, when he's expecting you to give it back and you keep it on and say, no, I'll go another mile with you. Who is power now? Not Roman soldier, not the sword, not the empire. The kingdom of God has power now. And perhaps you are now smiling to yourself as you walk that second mile. And he is now suddenly feeling uneasy as to why this person that is his enemy, that he has made his enemy, is actually treating him like a friend. That's how you break the power of sword, the power of authority, the power of empire. It is a practical example for them. So what does it mean for us practically? How do we do this? One caveat I think it just has been in my mind all the way through preparing this, and I just want to say, um, loving your enemy does not mean staying in an abusive relationship. I think for those of us that find themselves in a dating relationship or a marriage or with parents or, or in a, a children or a sibling where you are being abused physically, sexually, emotionally, verbally, this is not what that passage is saying to stay in this. And unfortunately or sadly, perhaps maybe you've thought that or somebody even told you that. We need to, you need to, and if you're in a situation like this, you need to reach out to one of us on staff or somebody that you trust in this church, say, I'm not, I'm not in a good situation, I need to get out of it. But as you remove yourself from an abusive situation, Jesus' words still come to us to say, okay, what does it mean though to love our enemy? And what does it mean to reflect on our own unhealthy responses to that? So this is not permission or excuse to stay in it, but it does not get us out of the question that all of us have to ask is what does it mean then to love our enemy? And each situation is different. Jesus gave them a practical example, several of what they would have regularly come up against, but we don't live in Roman occupied Palestine. So what is it for us? Well, Jesus' point is remember to push us beyond the boundaries of what we would say, this is the minimum amount of kindness and love that I'm required to show. And these are the people I show it to. These are the people who qualify for it. And these people don't. His point is to push us beyond the boundaries. And so practically, I would just say, and, and have a few suggestions, they're all under the same heading, because I don't know necessarily all of your situation, but I would say the very first thing we can do is the very practical thing Jesus gives us. It is to start with prayer. And I have a couple examples for that. For some, it may be starting with prayers of forgiveness. If you have been in an abusive situation, if you have sustained some hurt from somebody else, not only do you first need to remove yourself from that if you're in that, but to pray and start the journey of forgiveness. And this isn't like, okay, I, I, Lord, I forgive them, I'm done. <laughs> forgiveness is a decision, but it is a journey. And uh, several years ago, I preached a series through that six weeks um, called Finally Free. And you can find that on our website, thewell.ca slash teaching, if you need some help and saying, how do I navigate this? But that may be the starting point for some of you to, if you're going to actually show love and grace and blessing, it first has to start with healing of your own heart, regardless of what they do. You don't need them to participate in your journey of forgiveness. That's between you and God. Secondly, perhaps some of us need to pray for repentance. Like we need to repent and say, God, I've, I have responded to my enemy in unhealthy or sinful or unproductive ways. I have excused my behavior in response to something egregious someone else has done. Or I have written them off and not wanted to listen to what they're saying, even though part of me might know 1%, 2%, 5% of what they're saying is true. Thirdly, we may want to begin by praying for blessing, as in praying good, not praying that they would remove them, God would remove them from your life, but actually begin to pray, 
life and the things you would pray for yourself, the things you would pray for the people you love to begin to pray for the enemy that Jesus is inviting you to begin to love. And fourthly, just to pray for an opportunity. See, I don't know what an opportunity would be. It's not going to be a soldier on the road asking me to carry their pack, but what is an opportunity? If you don't see it, pray, Jesus, give me an opportunity to show them your love. Give me an opportunity to start a revolution. Give me an opportunity to break the power that that person has over me by showing them love. And then lastly, last week was actually the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, where it may be a struggle for some of us here in North America to come up with a list of people who we would call capital E enemies. But in many parts of the world, many Christians are actively persecuted, hurt, tortured, imprisoned, killed, houses burned, churches burned down, loved ones killed or imprisoned for their faith, for the fact they're following Jesus. And so one of the very real ways we can participate in this is to pray for the persecuted church. And there's a website there, opendoorscanada.org, that you can find out a little bit more about how to pray for those who are dealing front and center every day with legitimate enemies. You might ask yourself, <laughs> does this work? Does it work? Jesus gave them some practical examples of what it means to love their enemies. And then he lived out his own practical example of when the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and the Roman Empire became his enemies and killed him. He lived it out. <laughs> on what does it mean to bless those who persecute you, to pray for on the cross while he was dying, his enemies. And then in three short, short centuries, that same Roman empire that had crushed him and killed him had to say to him, we give up, you win. Friends, Jesus, our savior, our Lord, never invites us to do something that he has not done. He invites us to follow him and experience the miracle of what happens when we choose to believe that loving your enemies is the most powerful, subversive thing that you could do.